This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is actually going on? Well, Joe Biden just hit a landmark historical moment. On his 500th day of his presidency, he is officially the most unpopular president in the history of Poland. No president from Truman to Trump was this unpopular at 500 days into office. There's a lot of reasons for that. One of them might be the worst border crisis in American history, which he unleashed. One of them is probably the worst crime wave since the 1990s, which he has also played a hand in. But I think the thing that's driving it the most is the fact that we have the worst inflation in four decades and the highest gas prices on record over $5 a gallon for the first time in American history. Before this, gas had never gone over $4.11 a gallon at the worst. And we're now at $5 gas, and in some parts of the country, 6 and $7 gas. California, where they have huge taxes on top of everything else, it's even higher. And this is bad news for the country, and it's certainly bad news for Joe Biden. What do you think, Danny? It is. And I guess what troubles me a lot about this is there's a lot of government culpability here. There's a lot of Fed culpability here. And there's this this desperate attempt by the administration to somehow spin this as opposed to fixing it. One of the things that drove this was the fact that over the two years of COVID, also during the Trump administration, but continuing in the Biden administration, the government was absolutely pumping money into the economy, not just with the Fed keeping rates low and buying securities, but also with Congress dumping money into the economy. And one of the most chilling headlines, not everybody will have seen this this way, but one of the most chilling headlines I saw recently was, Joe Manchin thinks gives hope back to build back better. Dude, do not give hope back to build back better. Stop spending money, please. Yeah, so, you know, the spending that happened in the in 2020 during the height of the pandemic was understandable because people were being told stay home, don't go to work, don't engage in, in interaction with other human beings. And so It was the responsibility of the government to help people through that, right? And that's fine. But by the time Joe Biden came into office, that was over. (laughs) There was, you know, and and the government had just passed a $900 billion bill before he took office of more COVID spending. And then he comes in and passes the American Rescue Plan, which plunged $1.9 trillion of social spending disguised as COVID relief into the economy as his first act as president. 
And it wasn't just conservatives who were warning against that. Larry Summers published an op-ed in the Washington Post in February 2021 saying that if Biden went ahead with that, it would, this is a quote, set off inflationary pressures of a kind we have not seen in a generation. Well, Larry Summers has been proven right. It's been disastrous in terms of fueling the inflation that we're all experiencing because what it did was it you pumped up the demand side of the economy and put lots of money into people's pockets, but the supply side couldn't keep up because people didn't feel the need to go to work and businesses couldn't find workers. And so when you have demand exceeding supply, the result is shortages and inflation. It's economics 101. And it seems like the Biden administration doesn't get it because they just they wanted to follow that up with a $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill, which, thank goodness, Joe Manchin said no, and Kirsten Cinema said no, because they, if you, if you think 8.5% inflation is bad, imagine if it was double digits. Well, and I fear we're headed towards double digits. You know, this is the thing. I think that the president is sort of, well, you know, out of touch a little bit. And I'm just being nice here. And, you know, every single one of us sees this. When we're lucky as Americans, when we don't have to think about, you know, the economy, about every penny. But every time you go to the store, the prices are just staggering. It's not just for fancy people, you know, your airline prices are high. It's everything. It's milk, it's cereal, it's laundry detergent, it's toilet paper, it's even the yucky one-ply kind. And it's bad political news for the president, but that should make him want to be more serious. And instead, we've just got this sort of weird high school type reaction. So, you know, there it is. It's a big problem. Danny, we literally have people in this country who are choosing every day between buying gas and buying food. I was watching on the news the other day, a man in Nevada was being interviewed and he said he's working two jobs and he couldn't get to his second job because he couldn't afford to put gas in the tank to go to work because his job was too far away, but that his other job was only a mile from his home. So he was relieved that because he could walk there if he had to. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. The impact this is having, the you know, $5 gas, it's not just, oh, I'm sorry, I can't take my summer road trip, uh, my summer vacation. It's I can't get to work for a lot of people. Yeah, no, I know. I think there's a stunning lack of realism in Washington these days. You know, the notion that we want to hear more about how much Donald Trump sucked and how awful January 6th was and that we don't want to hear more about how to fix the economy. You're absolutely right. So when the January 6th committee holds the first primetime hearing in my memory on t- on national television, as you know, I'm as appalled as you by what happened on January 6th, but that sends a signal to the American people that politicians in Washington consider that the most important issue facing the country today more important than 40-year high inflation, more important than $5 gas, more important than the flood of illegal drugs coming over our southern border, which has led to the highest overdose rates in memory, the crime wave that's sweeping our cities. More important than all of that is rehashing what happened on January 6th. And it just sends a signal to Americans that politicians in Washington are just completely out of touch with what they are experiencing in their lived reality. Yeah, well, newsflash, 
they are completely out of touch with everybody's lived reality, unfortunately. So we are not out of touch. We are lucky in this instance because we persuaded our colleague, uh, Mike Strain, to join us once again. I feel like he's on so often I don't need to introduce him. But for those of you who have forgotten, Michael Strain is the Director of Economic Studies at the esteemed American Enterprise Institute, a wonderful public policy research institute in Washington, D.C., where both Mark and I are fellows, and delighted to have him again. Here's our interview. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. So since we've last visited with you, the uh, inflation has hit a 40-year record high. Gas prices have broken $5 for the first time ever in the history of the United States. Americans are paying, I think, something like $460 a month more for the same stuff that they were paying before. What the hell is going on, to coin a phrase? Everything is awesome. (laughs) There's nothing to see. Look away. (laughs) Well, that's Uh, it. Thank you for listening, folks. He's here every week. You know, I I, I think what's going on is um, is kind of a, a perfect storm almost. You know, in a very basic sense, there are two reasons why prices go up. Demand goes up relative to supply, which leads to price increases, or supply contracts for a given level of demand, which makes goods and services more scarce and, and therefore more expensive. And we're we're getting both. We had on the demand side a $900 trillion economic stimulus that was signed into law in December of 2020. We had the American Rescue Plan a few months later at $1.9 trillion. So that's a massive amount of stimulus that went into the economy in 2021, carried over into 2022. That stimulus was put into the economy at a time when the economy was in was in good shape and was on a good trajectory. Uh, unemployment was rising. The number of jobs were growing. The pandemic was fading. People were getting back out and, and leading more normal lives. In addition, households have been sitting on over $2 trillion of excess savings due to pandemic era stimulus measures that were put in place in the year 2020. And that also led to a big, uh, a big increase in, in economic demand. So the demand side of the economy was very strong due to fiscal policy. The demand side of the economy was also strong due to monetary policy. The Fed, for example, was still purchasing mortgage-backed securities with the goal of making it cheaper to get a mortgage to buy a house. The Fed was still doing that into 2022 at a time when home prices were growing at a 20% annual rate. Uh, and so, you know, the Fed was kind of pouring gasoline onto an economy that was already on fire. So we had all of this demand side pressure. Into the demand side pressure, we had supply chain issues from the pandemic. Uh, and then, of course, we had the war in Ukraine, which led to really sharp increases in gas prices and, and, and commodities prices, including including food, as a consequence of, of supply disruptions from the war. And so we have way too much demand, we have supply restrictions, and we have inflation at a 40-year high. The one thing uh, you didn't just mention there is the labor shortage. The supply can't keep up, not just because of supply chain issues or the war in Ukraine, but because businesses can't find workers, right? Isn't that, a, I think we have like a record 
11.5 million unfilled jobs in America today. Why is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's, it will surprise you uh, to hear me say that's a combination of supply and demand factors. On the demand side, the reason we have record job openings, the reason we have a, a record number of unfilled job vacancies is because businesses really, really, really need workers. Why do businesses really need workers? Because consumers really, really want to buy stuff. Uh, consumers really want to purchase goods or services. And so businesses really need to find workers. And so all of that demand side stimulus, all of those excess savings, the Fed keeping the short-term interest rate uh, at 0% for so long has led people to want to go out and buy stuff. In addition, of course, to the fading pandemic and some other factors as well. Uh, and so that's pushing up businesses' need for workers. Workers didn't come back quickly enough that was due in part to lingering pandemic-related issues uh, around, you know, closed schools and childcare issues, and and some people were still concerned about getting sick. But in addition, the American Rescue Plan, like the CARES Act, made unemployment benefits much more generous than they normally are, and that I think also contributed to people staying on the sidelines and, and not coming back to work. Where we are right now. Employment has almost fully recovered its level in February 2020. So we're very close to having uh, all the jobs back that we lost during the pandemic. And among kind of workers in their in their prime working years, workers who were generally speaking too old to still be in school, generally speaking too young to be retired, they're almost fully back as well. And so the fading pandemic, the expiration of the American Rescue Plan's unemployment benefit increases has led to workers coming back over the past several months. The issue isn't so much, at this point, the issue isn't so much uh, too few workers, though that was a, a big part of the problem in, in, in 2021. Right now, the issue is there are just way more job openings than there are workers available to fill them. Why are there so many job openings? Because consumer demand has been so strong. So, first of all, Mike, thank you. It's so nice to hear a lucid explanation of the facts here. There's been so much spin around what's going on with the economy. It's kind of ridiculous. But one thing I think we, we really haven't talked about enough, not just the three of us, but as a nation, and particularly as people who are so close to policymakers, is the role of the Fed. Yes, okay, you talked about the Fed, you talked about you know buying mortgage-backed securities, pouring oil on the, the flames of the housing market, which has an eerily familiar sound for those of us who lived through the last housing crash. And I think we really do need to actually talk about blaming the Fed. They seem to have one ratchet and one policy, and that's it. How did this happen? It happened for a number of reasons. In some ways, the Fed was a victim of its own success. So go back four decades ago, and we were in a situation that's you know feels quite similar to the situation we're in we're in right now. And in, in in the 1960s, the federal government, uh, through the kind of guns and butter policies of Lyndon Johnson, you know, really put a lot of deficit spending into the economy on both social programs and on spending for the Vietnam War that pushed demand kind of up higher than the economy's long-run sustainable supply side could could handle. That led to price inflation. Uh, and so we had a kind of demand side inflationary regime. 
And then, of course, the oil embargo in the early 1970s was a huge supply shock. Uh, and that and that combination sent prices way, way up uh, in a way that that, you know, again, has some has some parallels to where we are now. And inflation had gotten out of control and was a huge economic problem. It was a huge social and political problem. And uh, Paul Volcker came in as chairman of the Fed and Paul Volcker caused a deep recession. Paul Volcker took the unemployment rate up to 10%. And Paul Volcker made it extremely clear to businesses, to consumers, to the US Congress, and to financial markets, that the Fed was going to keep its foot on the back of the economy until it convinced everybody that it was gonna get inflation under control. And that inaugurated a period of four decades where inflation was under control because inflation is largely a psychological phenomenon. If I'm a business and I think that my workers are gonna come demand raises, then I need to increase prices. I don't wanna wait for that to happen uh, because if I wait for that to happen, it could really hit my profit. So I wanna do that preemptively. If I'm a worker and I think prices are going to go up in the future, I want to raise now. And so there's there's a, a large kind of forward looking component to inflation where expectations about future inflation can become self-fulfilling prophecies that affect actual price behavior today. And Volcker needed to convince everybody that the Fed was serious about keeping inflation low and stable. And he succeeded. He succeeded to the point that over the kind of 10-year period before the pandemic started, the Fed was unable to get enough inflation. You know, the Fed wants prices to grow at about 2% uh, annual rate, and the Fed was not able to do that. And so the Fed was, I think, conditioned just not to worry about this. There had been predictions following the financial crisis when the Fed engaged in some extraordinary measures to support the economy, like quantitative easing. There had been a lot of concern that those measures would lead to inflation. Those concerns didn't materialize. The Fed knew that. In a technical sense, the Fed's models all told them that there wasn't going to be inflation. Why did the models tell them that? Because the models were kind of built around what's happened over the past four decades. And so if you if you haven't had any inflation over the past four decades, your models are going to tell you that you're not going to have any inflation in the future. The Fed didn't really understand that and continued to rely on the models. There, I think, are a number of reasons why the Fed got it wrong. Having said that, you know, I think the Fed should have gotten it right. Certainly by the summer of 2021, it was clear that we were headed into some choppy waters. And certainly at that point, the Fed had not caught up nearly as quickly as it should have. The fact that the Fed was continuing to purchase longer term securities, uh, including mortgage backed securities into 2022 is completely indefensible in my view. And I think the Fed, like most economists uh, as well, I think the Fed was just caught unprepared uh, for this. And this came as, as a surprise. 
that was more excusable in, in the first half of 2021 than in the second half of 2021. And I think it wasn't excusable at all in the early months of 2022. The Fed, the Fed blew it. So the Fed blew it. The Biden administration blew it by pouring too much money into the economy. Steve Ratner was on Morning Joe the other day, and he said, in an ironic way, you almost have to thank Joe Manchin for blocking Build Back Better because $6.5 trillion of spending in this economy would make inflation numbers look small today. Do you think he's right? Yeah. I mean, I think he's right that if Build Back Better had passed, that would have made the situation worse. Yes. The $6.5 trillion, first of all, Build Back Better wasn't $6.5 wasn't 6.5 trillion. It was, it was, I think he means the combined, yeah, the, the combined, combined the, the kind of the whole, the, the whole the, enchilada was the whole enchilada of what they were proposing to do that that got carved up into ARP and into the infrastructure bill and into, and into build back better, but build back better would have added several hundred billion dollars to budget deficits uh, in 2022 and 2023. And that would have made the problem worse for sure. There's no question about it. And, you know, in our earlier discussion, I listed a whole bunch of factors, but I do think it's worth singling out the American Rescue Plan. Inflation in 2021 would have been, you know, so we had about 7% inflation in 2021. I think about three percentage points of that came from the American Rescue Plan. Maybe that estimate is too high. Let's take it down to two percentage points. You know, the difference between 7% and 5% is is significant. And so the American Rescue Plan really did, I think, contribute quite a bit to inflation in, in 2021. It's continued to contribute to inflation in, in 2022, although although less so because, you know, much of the spending was in 2021. And that was a big mistake. I mean, I, you know, I think the American Rescue Plan was you know, arguably the biggest fiscal policy mistake in several decades. And I think history will look back at 2021 and the kind of early months of 2022 as one of the worst performances by by the Fed in 40 years. We've had bad fiscal policy and bad monetary policy over the last year and a half. Mark, I don't know why we keep inviting these depressing people on our podcast. I need an optimistic Remember, we began. <laughs> we, we, we began. <laughs> Everything is awesome. There's nothing to worry about. Just look away. <laughs> Certainly, don't check your don't check your 401k. Balance. Oh my God, no! That that is, and, and that is 100 my policy. Is okay if you're in it for the long term. Do not look at the day to day because it's going to make you really, really sad. So, but there are people who don't have a choice, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. Sort of as playing it forward, you know. For those of us, uh, you are younger than me, and so is so is Mark. But thankfully, I'm not yet retired. Although God knows when AEI will lose patience with me. But but in the meantime, I'm not retired. I'm not depending on my 401k. There are a lot of people who are looking at their retirement and looking at the stock market and seeing plans evaporate before their very eyes. If you had to to sit down and counsel somebody like that, what would you tell them in terms of when we're going to see some relief, when things are going to get better, and when we're going to have the right policies that are going to right the ship? Or are things going to get worse? Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think for kind of the specific question about about financial markets, you know, it's it's very hard. Uh, you know, <laughs> Yogi Berra said predictions are hard, especially about the future. That's true times 10 for financial markets. My sense is that investors are very concerned that the Fed 
has lost control. And the Fed is the Fed. The Fed is very powerful. And the Fed can regain control. It's it's an act of will. It's a decision on the part of the Fed. And the Fed, you know, so far feels like it's, you know, experiencing this situation with the rest of us. And I think what, what the Fed needs to do is assert itself and to kind of reclaim the narrative. You know, what does that look like? When you say the Fed needs to reclaim the narrative, I mean, one of the things I hear, uh, you know, as an asterisk to that is that the Fed has become a highly political rather than a simply economic body. Is that what you mean by reclaim the narrative? So abandon the politics and just do what's right? Or am I overinterpreting? I think the Fed does need to be careful not to stray into areas that more properly belong to Congress, more properly belong to the political process, for sure. And, and historically, the Fed's been very good about making sure that it, it stays, you know, within the line, so to speak. In, you know, the last year or so, the Fed has, I think, tried to push those boundaries, at least, at least corners of the Fed have, have tried to push those boundaries more than is advisable. What I'm referring to is the kind of meat and potatoes, economic policy, economic situation, financial market situation, inflation situation narrative. And so I think the Fed needs to say, this is what we were thinking last year. This is why we got it wrong. We understand that we got it wrong. And this is the path forward. The path forward should involve some surprises, some more aggressive action than financial markets are, are expecting. Part of the issue is that the Fed has lost some credibility by issuing forecasts of the next year or two that, that are completely implausible. You know, so, for example, the Fed, the Fed's official forecasts suggest that inflation will come down, but unemployment will not come up. That is not going to happen. The Fed is signaling that it thinks that the kind of level of the interest rate that won't continue to stimulate the economy is around 2.4 or 2.5 percent. Uh, that level is is much too low. And when financial investors say, wow, the Fed thinks that it can, you know, get to two and a half percent and that's going to do the trick or wow, the Fed thinks that the unemployment rate is not going to go up and somehow inflation is just going to kind of, you know, miraculously drop without without the labor market being hit. This is not credible. These are not these are not credible statements. These are not reasonable views. And so when I say reclaim the narrative, we got it wrong. We understand that. We we fully understand the current situation. We're not still using 2021 thinking. And we understand that the interest rate needs to go into the threes or into the fours over the course of the next two years if we're going to avoid a recession. We understand that the unemployment rate is going to go up. We're going to try to make sure the unemployment rate doesn't go up too high, but we're going to need the unemployment rate to go up in order to get inflation to come down. And we think that we can do this. We think that we can engineer what's called a soft landing. We think we can put prices on a downward trajectory without tipping the economy into a recession. But let's not, let's not fool ourselves. That's gonna involve more unemployment and that is going to involve interest rates that are higher than we have been saying they're gonna be. 
And I think if the Fed, if the Fed, you know, kind of embraced the reality of the situation, because, you know, the reality is the reality, whether or not they embraced it or not. If the Fed kind of embraced the reality of the situation, I think that would give investors some confidence that, yes, we're in we're in a tough spot right now, but the Fed understands the situation. They understand what they need to do and they're and they're willing to do it. And I think that would kind of give some some additional confidence to investors that I think would have an impact on stock prices in a positive way. And so we'll see, you know, we'll see if the Fed comes around to that. So we've talked about monetary policy. We've talked about fiscal policy. Let's talk about the other culprit here, which is climate policy. So we've got gas prices that are $5 a gallon. And the Washington Post just reported that we are bracing for a summer of blackouts, particularly not just in Texas and California that have had them for a long time, but across the Midwest, which has had stable electricity for decades. And the primary reason for that is early shuttering of fossil fuel plants, particularly coal that are needed to meet increased electricity demand. The coal plants are not investing in upgrades and are choosing to shut down rather than keep going. And so we're going to have a shortage of electricity. John Kerry, who's the climate envoy, announced in Scotland at the COP26 that their goal, the Biden administration's goal is to have no coal plants by 2030, which is eight years from now. I mean, how much of a role is the war on fossil fuels playing in all of this, in all in, in gas prices, in uh, electricity shortages that are coming and all the rest of it that, that Americans are suffering through? It's hard to say. I mean, I think certainly it would be better if the United States produced more more oil and you know the the kind of more oil that there is on the world market the lower the global price of uh, of oil and you know i certainly think you know efforts to restrict domestic production of oil have been largely misguided and if we hadn't if we hadn't done that in the past then we would be in a slightly better position now with respect to the price of gas you know the the real issue is the is the war in Ukraine. That's what's really sending up these prices. But but more more domestic supply would help. It would also help if the Biden administration were successful at convincing uh, Saudi Arabia to to produce more. I think the president's efforts to tap the strategic petroleum reserve should help to put some downward pressure on prices. And again, certainly more domestic production would would help. But gas prices went up the highest in thirty years year over year in October before uh, last year, long before the war in in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, obviously the war in Ukraine has contributed, but, you know, there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on in terms of gas prices before then, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, kind of part of this broader, really strong demand story. People were driving more and, and, and that was pushing the price of gasoline up. The pandemic was fading. People were kind of going. Life was normalizing. You know, gas prices fell during the pandemic because nobody was driving, and then and then, and then they started to rise again. So there's a lot. There's kind of a lot happening there. Uh, but yes, it's certainly the case that the war in Ukraine was not the only factor, and and it's the case that gas prices were going up before. I mean, I think I think you started to see kind of a Ukraine effect on the you know, glo- uh, the global price of, of oil in December of 21. Uh, and so when you kind of go back to October, uh, which is the, the statistic you cited, that's not 
you're not seeing Ukraine in that. That's that's just these other factors. And so more domestic production would certainly be be good and it's something that, that, that we should be doing. I hope that <laughs> that the current situation with gas prices is not so long lasting that bringing a whole bunch of domestic production right now would have an effect because it takes a while for this stuff to get up to speed and, and kick in. But there are strong reasons to do it other than reducing gas prices that have that have been higher than than uh, than they than they otherwise would have been without the war. And so, you know, I think we should we just should be doing it as a as a matter of kind of you know sound energy policy. And you know, similar with your question about blackouts and coal and this sort of stuff. You know, I think I think we have gone too far in the direction of prioritizing alternative sources of energy, discouraging oil and, and gas and, and mining. You know, it's not a good situation if people can't have the air conditioning on or they can't turn on the lights. And that's not the kind of thing that should happen in the United States. And and if if our energy policy is resulting in, in those kinds of outcomes, then our energy policy needs to change. It's not to say that we shouldn't be, you know, encouraging basic research. And it's not to say that, you know, somebody might build a better battery and we don't longer need to do coal mining. But uh, if we're not there yet, we're not there yet. So another argument about this earlier this month, the New York Times morning, the thing they send out early in the morning, the only thing that I read from the New York Times in general was about the highly politicized theory of what they like to call greedflation. Inflation isn't because anything bad that the, that the Democrats did or the Congress did or President Biden did. It's really about evil corporations and taking advantage of the poor suckers out there and raising their prices. A Times analysis, they trumpet, quote, found that companies' uh, profits rose well above the pre-pandemic average. Mm. Needless to say, Jason Furman, who is one of our favorite <laughs> Democratic economists who worked in the Obama administration and who generally is not hyper-political in his analysis, said, and I paraphrase, that's crap. <laughs> Talk a little bit about this idea that there is corporate greed that is fueling, if I may use that term somewhat loosely, the current bout of inflation and hitting Americans really hard. I think there's very little to this theory. You echo my paraphrase of Jason Furman's, that's crap. I, yeah, I think it is crap. To use a technical economic term. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean, I have trouble with the kind of concept of greed in general in these, in these sorts of situations. I mean, I think companies are trying to make profit. And, you know, I don't think companies were, you know, so, I mean, to, you know, if you want to take this theory seriously, I think you have to ask, you know, okay, so we didn't have a lot of inflation in 2019. We had a lot of inflation in 2021 and 2022. If we think that greed is the explanation, then something must have changed, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, did companies become greedier, you know, so if greed drives inflation, then it must be the case that companies became greedier in 2021 than they were in 2019. That seems very hard to believe. You know, maybe you could argue that companies didn't become greedier, but there was something about the economy that kind of interacted with corporate greed that led to high prices. It's very hard to kind of come up with a 
explanation for what that would be. And, you know, this just kind of in general seems um, very, very silly. Let's go back to it. It seems like crap. I think, I think, I think crap <laughs> is a reasonable word. Do you need to embrace this, this <laughs> economic theory? Crapanomics. I like it. I like it. Crapanomics. <laughs> Danny's theory, which is hers. Which is mine. This is her theory. <laughs> Not deep Python reference there. So Joe Biden said the other day, look, I can't just flip a switch and turn off inflation. And that's true. The president can't just flip a switch and turn off inflation. But, you know, w- what can the president do other than doing no harm by not screwing up fiscal policy more and pouring more, you know, not trying to get Joe Manchin to agree to another trillion dollar bill before Democrats lose control of Congress this year. Besides, you know, following the first rule of holes is, which is when you're in one, stop digging. What can the president do to bring down inflation? So the first thing he could do is do no harm. Now is not the time for any more deficit spending. Now is not the time for any more increases in transfer payments to households. We don't need any more of that. That's uh, That would be bad. The president recently reiterated his commitment to the independence of the Fed, and it was trying, I think, admirably to make it clear that he wants the Fed to feel the political space that, um, that they need in order to do what's necessary to get the economy under control. You know, that's good. That's important. President Trump tried to get the Fed to do what he wanted and and that was that was bad. It's good that President Biden is not doing that. And it wasn't just President Trump. I mean President Reagan tried to do the same thing. You know, this is something that presidents do and certainly President Nixon and and you know previous presidents. So it's good not to do that. In this case, I think what the president wants and what the Fed wants are the same. And that's not always the case. But that's that's a helpful thing to do. You know, but there's not much. I mean, there's not much he could do. He could reduce the Trump era trade war tariffs. That would help. He could require people to start paying their student loan payments again. That would help. I mean, that would, you know, put some pull some money out of the economy. That would help. These are not things that would have a huge impact. Do you think they get it that the American Rescue Plan, I know they can't say it because it's their one legislative achievement, and they got to call it the American Rescue Plan and talk about how great it was and how it did great things for the economy, and that's why we have low unemployment and all the rest of it. But the actual professional economists in the White House who are like not like political spinmeisters, do they get it? Do they understand the role uh, of that spending in inflation, and are they, do they understand why they need to not do more? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think that they I don't think that they do. Uh, I, I mean, unlike foreign policy, economics is actually a data driven science. How is it that the economists in the White House don't understand this? Are they just bad economists? I mean, Summers understands it. Ratner understands it. I mean, there's some out there on the outside who seem to understand it who are Democrats. There there certainly are. And, you know, I think, um, you know, so it's very similar to my answer to your earlier question about how did the Fed get it wrong, there are perfectly sound economic models that are based on data and that are totally reasonable that that serious economists of both political parties used for for decades. They used them in the Bush era, they used them in the Obama era, they used them in the Clinton era. And those models and those and those empirical estimates suggests that the kind of demand side push from fiscal policy 
certainly had an impact on inflation, but nothing close to kind of my three percentage points in 2021. So I think zero is an unreasonable estimate for the American Rescue Plan. But you can you can come up with, you know, one percentage point. You could come up with 0.5 percentage points. You could get there in a in a kind of respectable way. The error is not recognizing that while those estimates are, you know, data driven for sure, that the period in which that data came to exist is not representative of the period we're in now. The relationship between economic variables, the relationship between inflation and GDP, the relationship between inflation and the economy's kind of underlying potential, the relationship between inflation and unemployment are all very different in 2021 and 2022 than they were in the 2000s or in the decade of the 2010s. And you have to account for that. And accounting for that, you know, feels more like an art than a science. But, you know, if you don't do that, then you're going to get the wrong answer. And that's how it wasn't just the Fed. It wasn't just economists in the White House. By far the mainstream view of professional economic forecasters, by far the mainstream view of business economists who pay really attention, who pay really close attention to business conditions, was that that what happened in 2021 wouldn't happen. And that view was wrong. You know, there were people who, you know, in January and February in the, of 2021 and the run up to the American Rescue Plan were arguing that it was wrong, but it wasn't completely insane. That's what we're looking for. That's the right note to land on. Not completely insane. Exit question, Mike. Are we going to have a recession? Are we going to, in addition to inflation, have stagflation coming up ahead of us? I think stagflation would be the the best case scenario. Oh my gosh, that we're that we're facing. You know, if you if you define stagflation as a period where the economy is really slowing down, unemployment is rising, but prices are also well above the Fed's target. I think that's the that's the best case scenario uh, because in that scenario the economy is still growing. I think uh, that scenario is relatively unlikely. I think it's much more likely than not that at some point in the next 18 months we'll have a recession. That recession could be caused by the Fed making a mistake and you know, accidentally pushing the economy into a recession. Remember, the, the Fed's goal is for the unemployment rate to rise, but not too much. The Fed's goal is for GDP growth to slow, but for GDP to still be growing. And there's a big risk the Fed misses that mark and kind of accidentally pushes the economy into a recession. Another big threat to the economy, of course, is inflation itself. You know, we're in a period where inflation-adjusted wages for the average worker are falling at a faster rate than they've fallen in 40 years. We are in a situation where household, where inflation-adjusted household income is falling. And so households are seeing a reduction in purchasing power. They can afford fewer goods and services. And when incomes fall and wages fall, households spend less money. We are in a position where there's enormous uncertainty about the future path of inflation-adjusted profit and revenue for businesses. In a situation like that, businesses say, hey, we're going to you know, hold off on making any big purchases until, until this period is passed. If you've got households and consumers pulling back and you've got businesses pulling back, then you know, that's your economy right there. And I think it's very 
hard to imagine that not happening if inflation continues. And I think it's very hard to imagine that inflation is, is going to normalize at any point, you know, certainly this year. And so between the economy slowing under the weight of these higher prices and the Fed having to walk this tightrope uh, that it may not be able to successfully walk, I think the odds of a recession in the next 18 months are two thirds, something like that, uh, you know, pretty, pretty high. You know, consumers are feeling worse about the economy. Consumer sentiment is in worse shape right now than it was during the lockdowns, which is an amazing fact. You know, go back to the lockdowns, right? Stay in your home. Don't leave. Don't go shopping. You show up to, you know, a clothing store or a bookstore or a cafe and, you know, the the manager, the owner, there's like a handwritten sign, you know, we're closed <laughs> until further notice. It, it, even in that environment, consumers felt better about the economy than they feel right now. And that just tells you the toll that these prices are taking on people. And so we're in a bad place. And of course, on top of that, we're also seeing substantial reductions in asset prices. People's savings are taking a big hit right now. It's possible the Fed can pull off a situation where we don't tip into a recession, but I think it's uh, it's it's more likely than not that, that we see a recession. Well, that's cheerful. Everything is great. <laughs> There's nothing to see. We should have stopped this interview in the first five minutes and we would all be feeling a lot better, Michael. But we're glad we continued and we're grateful to you for coming on. Just get yourself a cup of coffee and a cookie. Everything's fine. <laughs> But that seems to be the theme uh, of this conversation. There's a lot of crap. There's a lot of things that are marginally insane. And there are smart things that could be done to deal with this challenge. But unfortunately, we're not persuaded that they're going to be done because apparently we are ruled by a bunch of dopes. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Right. Stick your head in the sand. That's the right policy. AEI recommends headlines. Mike, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about it. You're always great. And we're really grateful. Yes, great to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, Danny, that's depressing. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, oh, things are terrible and they're going to get worse. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we talked a lot about fiscal policy. We talked a lot about monetary policy, but climate policy and environmental policy is, again, in the era, in the mantra of first do no harm boy, is this a really bad time to be pursuing a radical climate agenda <laughs> in this country? We are going to have power outages this summer. Not only are we going to have blackouts where you can't get energy no matter how much you're willing to pay for it because the coal plants have been shut down by the Biden administration's climate policies, but if you can get the electricity, you're going to pay 233% more. That makes $5 gas seem cheap. This is a disaster that's waiting to come this summer that's going to make people even matter than they are today. Well, but but remember, Mark, uh, the reason that you fail to understand why the Biden administration and John Kerry, one of our favorite political leaders, is so, um, let's say, oblivious to the impact that this is going to have is because climate policy has nothing to do with policy. Climate is a religion. Yes. And as a religion, it supersedes all other sordid things like the price of toilet paper and the price of gas. And if you understand that and you understand that they are saving our planet, Mark, 
then you understand that it is okay that the little people suffer because the little people need to suffer in order for our leaders to achieve greatness. So you're being a little facetious, but you're not wrong. Only a little. <laughs> Only a little. I, I mean, I, it's, I think it's true. So, I mean, you had the Interior Secretary the other day testify before the uh, Senate, and she was asked by Senator Barrasso, are gas prices too high? And she refused to say yes, repeatedly. Are gas prices too high? You had Joe Biden the other day in Tokyo say that, well, high gas prices are part of this incredible transition we're going through from the era of fossil fuels to a new era of green energy. I don't think that they think high gas prices are a bad thing. They don't like the blame for it, which is why they keep blaming Vladimir Putin for it. But I think they think that just like the, just like the government raised the price of cigarettes to stop people from smoking, high gas prices are going to stop people from using fossil fuels and, and buying and moving into this new era of green energy. So I don't even think that they think it's a bad thing. I think this is, the, from their perspective, high gas prices, again, they don't like the politics of it. They don't like being blamed for it, but it's the silver lining to what's going on because it's, they think it's going to advance their climate agenda. Yeah, we should have Steve Koonin back on to talk about this because I really do think we don't pay enough attention Absolutely. to it. Absolutely. Hey, guys, sorry about the constant references to toilet paper. You know Mark and I are both obsessed with it. And thanks for listening. <laughs> don't hesitate to share your comments, concerns, ideas. We love hearing from you. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.